Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. Today's episode of Trial and Medical Error, I interview Victor Burbanic, who is a super well-known, super accomplished trial lawyer here in Western Pennsylvania. Vic talks about a recent terrific verdict that he and his associate, Cherry, got in a very tough medical malpractice case in McKean County and was the first medical malpractice verdict in that county's history. So pretty amazing outcome. And Vic shares with us his philosophy and approach to trials, the different hurdles they had to overcome in this particular trial, some curveballs that Vic and Sherry were able to take from the defense and actually uh, turn into great pitches to hit out of the park to get an awesome verdict. Some interesting discussion on the way that Victor approaches his opening statements, his preparation for cases, and his cross-exams in a particularly interesting hypothetical that he uses. So I think you'll enjoy this episode with Victor Perbanic. And uh, for those of you who are listening who have not already subscribed, if you're liking the podcast, please subscribe on your favorite platform and give us a like or leave us a comment. We really appreciate it. So with no further ado, Victor Burbanek. All right. So psyched, Vic, to have you on the show. And you know, we're just chit-chatting a little bit. But you know, before we kind of launch in everything we're going to talk about today, I'm going to tell you a little story. So when I first started practicing law you with know, John Quinn and Irv Portnoy back in the day, I was always, so I was always like an athlete. I'd always sort of want to know, like, who are the really good people? And I swim, and I'd always be obsessed with, like, the top 16 in a given event. Like, who are the best ones out there? And so, you know, when I tried a few cases and I, I got the bug for trying cases, you know, I was always asking people, like, you know, who's the best in town? Like, who are the best trial lawyers in town? And inevitably, everybody would always put you right at the top. Oh, Vic Probanic, you got to go. Vic Probanic's the man, he's the super trial lawyer. And then I remember, you know, but I didn't know who you were. I just heard heard your name a bunch. And then I remember I was trying some goofy case in Allegheny County and I was in the middle of my trial. And I remember, you know, you walking by and whoever I was with was just like, oh, that's Vic, that's Vic Probanic. And you had this big briefcase and you looked like a million bucks. And I was, it was just cool. And so, you know, point that out because it's, it's neat to 20 something years, well, 20 years for me later, get to talk to you on the podcast about an awesome yeah. verdict you had recently. So thanks for, thanks for coming on and chatting with me. Thank you for the invite. Yeah. It's awesome. I'm psyched. So that good anecdote. Yeah. 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 It's just neat to think about how, yeah, things just kind of change over time. But can you tell me a little bit about your background? Like where did you come from to go from, you know, wherever you were to the founder and, and longtime, you know, kick-ass lawyer at uh, Probanic and Probanic? I began at the uh, DA's office, Brendan. That's the only only job I applied for after law school because I didn't want to, from the outset, learn how to try cases, and I thought that was the best forum to do it. And, and that proved to be a good good choice. In a couple of years there, I tried hundreds of cases, juries, bench trials, sometimes multiple trials in a day, so you get a rapid fire exposure to you know, bench trials and those first few knee-knocking, terrifying jury trials where you you can hardly stand there and speak. 
goes up naturally a uh, gregarious sort or a public speaker, and I have the same aversions to that that we all do at the outside and the outset and the same fears. And that helped get through that. And I went on to do a left there, got a job as a law clerk for Judge Robert Doyle, great guy, wrote opinions for him, but not in attendance there at the at the courthouse. So I got a little salary and opened my own office and did primarily criminal defense work at first, some other civil things. And at some point I was representing a, a music group of all things in an injunction hearing. And one of them had a a car crash pending in Lawrence County. And he asked, and his lawyer passed away and he was like two weeks from, from a trial. And he asked me if I could go uh, represented in the trial, and I did, and got a plaintiff's verdict in that case. And I thought, well, this isn't so hard. And <laughs> It'll always be like that. And then a funny story, I was doing a death penalty murder case up in Butler, Pennsylvania, and uh, tried it once, and it was a mistrial was declared because the prosecutor got appropriately sick by the end of the case. And uh, we tried it again, and my client was acquitted. And his brother, who was from Erie, Pennsylvania, was there watching the trial, and he had a pending, oh, what you would call a mild, closed head injury case. And uh, he asked me after the trial if I would agree to represent him in that trial, which was just, in that case, which was just sitting around up there in Erie. So I went up to Erie and uh, tried my second civil trial in front of John Boza, and that proved to be a $5,000 offer uh, case and I got a verdict I think was this was many 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 years ago it was a, a million seven verdict that the then biggest verdict in Erie County so my second civil trial I thought well it's uh, this this is a much easier thing than sitting next to a guy in the courtroom with uh, who's going to get the needle in his arm if you lose and I started doing civil cases became fascinated by medical cases in my my very I went to a Catholic high school that was peopled with very, very bright people. And I invariably would get the highest grades in the advanced placement biology classes. I always had a penchant for it. And so I started doing more and more and more medical negligence cases over the years and uh, have tried lots of very difficult cases and lost a lot of very difficult cases. And one, some people would say are unwinnable. So it's been a, a great privilege for me to be able to do it. Let me ask you, going back to the beginning of what you were talking about, that, you know, you mentioned something, and I'm, I'm very similar in that you said uh, you're not a very gregarious, and, and maybe I sort of took from that you're not maybe like a natural public speaker, and yet you threw yourself into the DA's office to get trial work. What was, that seems kind of incongruent to me. So what was the, the motivation to go from somebody who maybe wasn't loving to speak publicly and then putting yourself in about the most public speaking right. situation you could. I think I always had the inclination, desire to be a trial lawyer, to try cases and to do it in that forum. And if I had to learn to, you know, choke back my fears and embarrassments about public speaking, I was damn well going to do it, I guess. Why did you have family that were attorneys and this was like something you're following the footsteps of? Or why did you want to be a trial lawyer? I'm the first member of our extended family who ever graduated from college, much less having a lawyer in the mix. So there was no, you know, family mentorship or anything like that. My dad was a very, very bright and articulate guy, but uh, never did graduate from college. Spending a couple of years at Pitt was just something that, that drew me to the trial work. 
I don't know exactly when it was. I just thought if I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm never going to be able to sit around in an office and you know write contracts or do divorce cases or that sort of thing. Not to denigrate those or minimize them. I just knew I didn't have the constitution for it. I like uh, I'm a hunter and a fisherman, and I and I like that kind of thrill and that kind of skill to be in there and in very, very important cases for our clients, as you know. I was an English and philosophy major, oddly enough, and to use all those good words and ways of speaking that we acquire over the years, I thought it was just the best place for me to be. I don't know, it's hard to say. It was just a, a thing, a drive, a passion that I had from the very beginning and still have today. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, epidemic, I guess, is a decent term for the fact of, you know, young lawyers have a difficult time getting trial experience these days. Do you still to this day think that the DA's office is a, a great place for people to start? Or what, what are your thoughts on if somebody wants to become a trial lawyer, what's the best way to, to start out? It was then a great place for me, and I think it probably still is. Uh, you can be as good or as poor uh, a trial lawyer in the DA's office as you choose to be. I, I like to think that I you know prepared the cases to the fullest extent possible, had a, a track record there that people were beginning to take wagers when I would lose a case there, because I think I prepared more than others. I was there late at night after everybody else had gone home preparing for the next days or weeks or whatever. And, you know, those are habits, as you know, that there's nothing that can replace preparation for a trial. You better know way better than the doctors do in a medical case and, and the defense lawyers. And that won't always save you, but it's a threshold requirement. I think I'm always uh, fascinated that really good trial lawyers come from all walks of life and different influences, different backgrounds and, and different ways that they kind of came up. I did not do the DA route. Wish I had, I think. I would have gotten even more trial experience. But having not done that, and uh, did everybody in your firm, at least all your family members, did they all start out in the DA? My brother Michael did. Jeffrey did briefly. Ernest Nod, he's been tutored by me for the most part. As far as today, how do you get trial experience? I would imagine that's still as good a forum as any today. And like I said, you can become, you can learn great habits there. Or you can learn bad ones. Just the same thing with the public defender's office. You know, you can get prepared or you can go in and do a lackadaisical job and not learn anything. But if you if you want to learn how to try cases, you obviously have to be in a courtroom to do it. And that's the only place that I know that ensures that. Do you feel that your time in the DA's office, you know, you get it's this, you know, short, relatively short period of time, but very high density exposure to trial that had to have influenced the way that you approach trial? or the way you think about trial. I mean, I have to imagine it's gotta be somewhat different than the way, you know, me who never went through the DA's office approaches trial. How do you think it impacts the way, you know, you look at and 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 handle civil cases? Mm, I think what it does, it, it, I started there and then did a great deal of criminal defense, including, like I said, the death penalty cases, very, very serious criminal cases, probably a dozen or so in federal court, which is the worst, the worst possible form to defend a person in a criminal case around, and I had a almost completely 100% trial win record in the federal courts, which is, if you know anything about that place, is really, really remarkable. And, you know, you have to learn to think on your feet and react and, and be able to deal with an unpopular form. Many federal judges look at the defense lawyers, I think, 
as not being very far above the defendants. It's a, it can be a very, very, very unfriendly place to be, and you have to be able to, to, to push through all of that, and you have to be able to react to bad things that happen during trials with a certain amount of uh, poise and creativity. You really have to be tough and learn to swim against the current, if you will. So I think criminal defense, you know, I've always said I can try any case, uh, whether it's a civil case, a criminal case, or whatever, with the basic skills of, of being a trial lawyer. It's not, you can learn any case, you can learn medicine, you can learn rules and regulations for tractor trailers, you can learn, you know, patents or trademarks if you have to. It's the the basic fundamental skills of how to talk to judges or juries in particular, they transfer across the board. Do you have specific to civil cases? You know, we've got the burden of proof, albeit it's a lower one than prosecution in a criminal case. So, so they say. It, it, it doesn't work out that way. They say it. I still think you have to prove it by, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt in our cases anyway. But do you have any sort of, you know, big picture principles? Like when you're talking about if you're a trial lawyer and you have, you know, those overall trial abilities, you can try any case. Are there any kind of big picture concepts that you feel, you know, basically apply in every case? I mean, whether it's, you know, connecting with the jury, talking with the jury, keeping the trial short or, or long, or what do you, what are the big picture aspects that you think apply always? For me, the biggest thing is to believe in the case, to believe in the client, to believe we're on the right side. I have uh, that sort of, uh, maybe it's a metaphysical belief that if you don't believe what you're saying and you're not really behind what you're saying, you can't be persuasive. And uh, part of that concept is that you must always, always tell the complete truth to a jury or a judge, as we all know. But I, it's a rule that I think I see abridged from time to time by lawyers, which and it never, ever ought to be. You know, I tell my brothers all the time that if you if as a lawyer if you can't be truthful about things and most especially always in a courtroom you know you shouldn't be doing it and uh you know if i get myself in the mental space where i believe i'm convinced i'm on the right side of the case that i tell the jury the truth about the case and what happened and why it ought not to have happened as the case may be then i think you you go a long way towards becoming the your most persuasive, articulate self. I believe people feel that, you know, that when you're talking to a jury, I think they can feel the passion and belief that you have. I mean, I think it's just, it's not words, it's not communication, but it's some connection that you can make. On that point, and, and we're going to get to the Wolfgang case, which is, you know, a big part of what I wanted to talk to you about. But with those ideas in mind about belief in it, and I feel the same way, it's, I think, I imagine sometimes if we are sort of selling something, we are definitely selling something in trial, but I imagine sometimes if I had to stop being a trial lawyer and I had to go into some other occupation and I think of, you know, sales, you know, you'd have to believe in the product or else I don't think I could ever really sell it to somebody. I'd feel bad about it. They'd read it on my face kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you talked earlier about the importance of preparation. Now, with all that said, I think there's not a movement, but I think there's a lot of discussion about, talked with a really good trial lawyer a couple episodes, and, and they were talking about how they really try to script out 
the entire case. You know, the, the opening is to the word, like almost written out, and the images are written out, and everything is very, almost like a play. Now, I don't think that always works out that way. Now, that said, are you that, you know, sort of, you know, mechanical about it? Or do you take a, like a sort of a looser approach, obviously still having prepared heavily for the case? I would be fibbing if I ever said I ever completely scripted out a whole trial. I don't, I don't do that. As far as openings and closings in this luxurious era of being able to use PowerPoints, speaking from a vantage point where it was just your words and a card or, you know, blown up exhibit that you could use in an opening or closing. They are an immense help as well, for, for persuasion and an immense help as a mnemonic device for doing openings and closings. They're, uh, you know, they, they're not something you can re rely on exclusively, but if you're very, very careful and prepare a good bare bones PowerPoint for an opening or closing can result in a really, you know, the kind of opening you do, you sit down after you're done and think, man, I have really gone a long way towards winning that case right now, right now. And as my early mentor, Jerry Spence always said, when do you want to win your case? And he says, as soon as you can. <laughs> that, and that's the opening. And I don't believe for any minute for a moment that you could absolutely win a case in an opening, but you sure as hell could take a long, long step towards that. Did you ever meet Spence? I have, yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Regarding your openings, do you typically have sort of a set formula you follow or a, you know, sort of a pattern, or is it really case dependent? It's, it's kind of case dependent, but like all of us, like I know do, Brendan. I've been a student of the great trial lawyers across the country and the world from reading, you know, Clarence Darrow's openings and closings on up to, to the, you know, the geniuses out there today. And I shamelessly steal and borrow things and phrases and methodologies and put them into the, into the sack and shake them up and, you know, come up with my own formula. But I've been a great fan of, and it's sometimes at odds with David Ball and his his group, but I still use very often, you know, a simple rule at the beginning of a medical negligence case, you know, doctors should never unreasonably endanger patients. And, and it gives you a sort of, you know, touchstone to, to work through cases with. And, uh, but I do not use that formulaic opening template that, that is touted in those books, but notwithstanding there, there's a lot of good things in all of the publications today. You know, the direct exams and the cross exams, obviously, nobody, I don't care what what you tell me, nobody can thoroughly script a cross exam and, and get away with it. No, agreed. And, you know, unlike you who didn't get the, if you had somebody mentoring you when you were in the DA's office, but I was just sort of left to my own devices and, and tried right. any case I could get my hands on at my old office. And, you know, I just was like, I got to figure out something, if there's something out there. And I just found books and read the books. And right. and I think I'm very, because I was basically book taught, combined with then trying it out in trial, uh, I'm probably a little more formulaic than than probably you would be based on just on our different backgrounds and so forth. And I did not have... I mean, I think I lost my first, I don't know, 12, 13 trials before I got, my first verdict was $500. Mm -hmm. So a different, a different starting point than you, well, uh, but uh, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. 
the difference had been that I tried many, many cases by the time I tried my first civil cases and, uh, you know, the basic fundamental rules of trying cases were over. So, yeah. So I had a, a leg up. If this you is true. A hundred percent. So let's, let's talk about this awesome verdict that you and, uh, how do you pronounce Sherry's last name? Is it Canaan? Sherry Cannon. Sherry Cannon. Like so you and Sherry tried a med mal in McKean County, which you know, for those listening uh, who are not familiar with the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the outlying counties, there are certain places that you do not want to be if you could avoid it, but you can't control where where people get injured, unfortunately. And so you're out in McKean, which is not a very good historically plaintiff venue. Is that correct? As the judge told me more than once to the point where uh, I, at the end, made a remark, maybe I shouldn't have. He told me again and again and again, you know, there has never been a plaintiff's verdict in a medical malpractice case in our county, in the entire history of the county, to my knowledge. I don't know whether that's true or not, but he told me that again and again. And right before the trial, Brendan, he said that yet again. And I said, well, Your Honor, it sure sounds like you're due for a verdict up here. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And then you do it. I mean, it can't, it doesn't get any better than that. No. So I know a little bit about the case, but can you give us sort of a summary about what it involved? You know, why did you guys bring the claim? And then of course, if it tries, there's obviously some, some issues with the case and talk about the problems with the case as well. Okay. Well, our client, Randy Wolfgang, had lost his left leg below the knee from an undiagnosed infection in his foot. The looks simple on his face, but Randy had, who was then and still is, as far as I know, even in spite of my remonstrations against him, was a heavy, heavy smoker, had bad vascular disease, and he had developed a, an abdominal aortic aneurysm that was repaired some years before this infection occurred in his foot. And what proved to be the cause of his foot infection was the, the graft in his belly got infected and was showering bacteria down into his extremities, including his left and right foot. The one the infection in the left foot got bad enough that it cost him his leg. And with that kind of complex overlay, none of our experts in the case, and the defense certainly was screaming the, the whole trial that Nobody could have diagnosed this infected graft and therefore cured the foot. You know, very complicated, you know, messy sort of medical matrix. And we have a client who's a, a smoker, which, you know, is anathema to some people, some juries. And you, you always have to hear about it from the defense experts and the like. So it had, uh, you know, it had issues. And one of the Sherry Cannon, God bless her, I tell her she should have been a defense lawyer. She, even to the point of driving to the courthouse, she said, I don't know how we could possibly win this case because he should have gone to the emergency room over the Thanksgiving weekend when his foot got so bad and we can't win. And as you know, it's kind of a bad problem in a case. Absolutely. And wait, was was he diabetic as well? No, not diabetic. One good thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, how, how many uh, you know, medical you know, problems can, can you have in one case? I mean, the smoking is is very difficult to, to overcome because it becomes the drumbeat of the defense. And there's some legitimacy to it. It, it can, you know, there's studies out there that show it can, you know, impact healing and, and all this different stuff. So that's a formidable hurdle. Was it about, because I, in the article that I read, I understand there were some, there were some 
concerns about a comparative component. So what was the time frame? So he develops this infection on his foot. Yeah. And so what's the time frame from time of infection until it gets to the point that he's got to have his leg amputated? Several weeks, several weeks, which in the interim, he'd gone to the emergency room twice and seen his PCP once, been given antibiotics, a variety of things. And our salvation, Brendan, on that subject was that the wife had made phone calls that were, some of which were documented at least, to the PCP's office over the Thanksgiving weekend. And, but most importantly, I had a really good vascular surgery expert from up at Brown by the name of Dr. Patterson, who looked at the photographs that the wife had taken of his foot, and he developed this abscess in his left foot that bloomed into a pustule on top the dorsal side of his foot, the top of his left foot, over the Thanksgiving weekend. And Dr. Patterson said, look, by then, you know, that foot was gone. He had osteomyelitis in there, bones were destroyed. And sure enough, there was a CT scan done the Monday after Thanksgiving that did show that the bones were dissolving at that point. So whatever he did or did not do over the Thanksgiving weekend was of no consequence. And even the PCP, I think trying to deflect responsibility from himself for not being more attentive to the phone call, said, oh, it was too late. So that worked out famously for us. And so by the fact of, you know, the point of no return happening before your client's alleged uh, comparative actions, that was your primary defense for why he wasn't at fault or contributed to this because it was already, you know, the die was cast, so to speak. Yeah. And his wife was very assertive, not him so much because he was in terrible pain lying on the couch, dreadful infection. But his wife was very assertive about calling the, the PCP and explaining that his foot still wasn't any better and no action was taken. So that was, that was very helpful. What were the primary theories of you know, a fault against, I understand there was two defendants that I was at a 90-10 apportionment of fault between them. Yeah. What are the theories of fault against both of them? Well, the ER doctor for failing to do an adequate exam, failing to do adequate testing, an example of how poorly this fellow was treated would be that uh, I think the last expert for the defense, Brenda, was a professor from Penn, internal medicine, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he was up on the witness stand and I asked him, I said, on the board, board there, I said, so you're a professor? And he said, yes. And, uh, and the doctor too, he said, yes. And uh, I said, and you teach young men and women how to be good, safe doctors and to treat their patients so they're safe and don't get harmed, yes. That's all I had on Vordier. And then one of the defense lawyers, maybe you'll know who it is, even had a, likes to use slides to talk about the doctor's duties on them. And I prepared a slide for doctor, I think his name was Mink. And I said, these are the duties that, I'm gonna ask you about some duties that, this is on cross-examination now. Doctor had, and I went through this list of things that were, you know, no-brainers that he had to say yes to, perform a good thorough exam of Randy's left foot, obtain complete medical history and so on. Everybody had to agree to it. It became apparent, I think, in going through this list of duties to the jurors that much of this had not been done. And then for some fun, the last witness in the case, I said, Dr. Mink, I'm going to ask you, since his honor and the judge had been very diligent about informing the jurors about what and who a an expert witness is and how they can and must answer hypothetical questions. And I said, I'm going to ask you hypothetical questions since his honor has told the jurors in this case, we're allowed to do that. 
He said, okay. I said, I said, Dr. Mink, I want you to assume that I have a bunch of bird dogs. I have a bunch of English setter dogs and I take them hunting. And sometimes I go hunting right up on the mountain here in Claremont for grouse here in Pennsylvania. And he said, well, I don't know, you know, why or how talking about a dog could have anything to do with this case. And I said, you'll see. And I said, I want you to assume that one of my dogs, and I said, I'm going to select my dog, whose name is Pity Pat, true, true story, uh, Pity Pat, as the example here. And I looked over my shoulder, and I said, so the defense lawyers can make fun of me later on. And sure enough, one of them did. And I said, uh, I want you to assume that Pity Pat comes around the bush, and just like Mr. Wolfgang, she can't put weight on her left front leg. And further assume that I'm going to lay her on her side, and I'm going to push on her shoulder and her elbow and her wrist to see if I can elicit pain. And I said, she'll never, she'll never bite me, but she might lick me if I'm hurt her. And then if none of that elicited pain, I'm going to take her foot and I'm going to start pushing on the pads of her foot hard so I can see what's hurting her. And if it was something like was bothering Randy Wolfgang, she would wince when I pressed on her foot. So I would take her to the vets and they would do an x-ray. And first I stopped there and I said, now, Dr. Mink, that exam that I would do on Pity Pat in the woods. Now, Randy Wolfgang was entitled to at least that good an exam of his foot, wasn't he? And he said, yes, he was. And I said, did he ever get one from the emergency room doctor, the emergency room physician assistant, or the PCP? And he turned red and he said, well, it was never documented. I mean, this poor man had come in unable to bear weight on his left leg and nobody did a simple thing like find out where it's hurting him, knee, calf, foot, whatever. I mean, his foot was red and swollen, but presumptively that's that's what it was. But So I said to continue with our analogy, Dr. Mink, when I take pity path to the vets, they're going to x-ray the foot to see if there's a broken bone. He goes, uh-huh. And if that didn't show anything, they're going to do an ultrasound to see if uh, there's a soft tissue thing in there that's hurting her. Okay. And if none of that revealed anything, let's say, Mr. Probanik, would you pay for a CT scan of Pity Pat's foot to see what's going on in there? And you can bet I would have agreed to pay for it. And uh, they would have diagnosed her problem way before she lost her foot. And I said, did they do those tests for Randy Wolfgang until it was too late? He said, well, no. You know, and it, it was just a perfect perfect kind of simple analogy that made it very, very clear. And I was, you know, I was a little troubled by it, but the judge didn't really like me that much. And I thought, well, maybe I'm going to get jumped over this, but I didn't. And sure enough, in the closing argument on that pity pat cross-examination, one of the defense lawyers had to, had to mock me like I knew one of them would and said, and we had to hear about Mr. Probanik's dog, Pity Pat. I don't know what that had to do with anything. <laughs> and I got a call from a juror a couple weeks after the trial, a lady who was a commercial insurance, insurance salesperson, one of the more conservative people on the jury. And I said, boy, I hope it didn't bother you me talking about my job, my dog, Pity Pat, during the, uh, during the trial. And she said, oh, no, no, that was... That was perfect. She said it became very apparent to us 
that that poor man got treated worse than the dog. Yeah. And that was the take. I mean, I, yeah, it's brilliant to me when you compare that. You're not even saying it, but the implication that they picked up on was, you know, this, yeah, this guy yeah. didn't, you know, a dog would have gotten better care than, than what he got under the circumstances. Yeah, I, you know, that would be insulting to say that, but I was, I was using her as an analogy. And well, it, it was the truth too. I mean, it was the truth. That, I remember vividly during the during the closing argument, and I don't know whether it's proper or not, Brendan, but I, I raised my hand like this and I said, I swear to God, ladies and gentlemen, if that had happened to Pity Pat, she would not have lost her leg. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's not violating the golden rule if it's applied to a dog, right? No, I don't think so at all. <laughs> um, so obviously that was a really compelling cross that did connect with the jury. Well, let me ask you this. When you're going into closing, I'm sure you've had trials where, you know, you're feeling like it, things are just rolling with you and you just have a very good feeling you're going to win and other ones kind of don't right. know and other ones you're pretty sure yeah. you're done for. Where yeah. were you going into, say, closing and, and deliberations? Did you feel like you had it or were you un uncertain? What I felt like is that I had tried the best possible case that I could have tried and I was happy with the, with the way things went. And I was that blissful state that you don't get to very often in a trial where I was just confident that everything had gone as well as it could have for our client and very, very hopeful, you know, not confident. I never, I don't know if I ever, you know, really believed this is in the bag or that sort of thing, but I just felt, I felt great. I mean, I felt like I had done, done it all as well as I knew how. And it was one of those things I was telling somebody afterwards, I'm gratified to see that after all the years I've been doing this, I still think I get a little bit better each time I do it. And I've never had the feeling of backsliding or losing my touch or my passion for it or anything like that, which is a great, great thing for you to look forward to. Brian. Yeah, no, no, I, I do. Cause I really feel like I have so much to improve upon and, and get better on. Right. So I love, I love hearing that. You're feeling that as well, you know, given all that you've accomplished. A bunch of other questions I want to hit you with. So going into the trial, what were you most worried about as far as like where they like to think, you know, some other, you know, great trial lawyer said somewhere, you know, it's like inverse and flip the case. And I try to think about, okay, not how am I going to win the case, but how do we lose this case? What's the most likely way we lose or why are we going to lose this case? Where were you feeling most concerned that you're going to lose that case going in? My biggest concern was the perennial attempt by the defense to play to the human being's lowest common denominator of, you know, prejudice. The guy smokes, he still smokes, he lost his leg. Uh, you know, he's got all these other health issues, all that sort of jazz. He didn't go to the ER, all that irrelevant often irrelevant stuff that they try to smear people with. That was the biggest concern that I had going into it. But, uh, you know, the one one great thing, and I should, I got to give the judge credit for this. One great thing he did is he allowed us to submit Bourdier questions beforehand, some read by the court, and then he would bring, he brought panels of three of the jurors into one of the uh, little conference rooms or whatever. And he allowed us very progressively, the lawyers, to get up and do just a little bit of individual voir dire with the jurors. We had to stick to the script, but being who I am, I had to ad lib a little bit when I was <laughs> reading the questions. And we had a question about smoking and I put it to the prospective jurors, you know, you're going to learn during the trial that Randy Wolfgang is a smoker. And there are people, and this wasn't really in the question, but there are people who think that 
if you eat too much or you drink too much or you eat too much candy or you smoke cigarettes, I tried to blend it into things that everybody does or knows people who do that we all know are bad for our health. Does anybody feel like the fact that he he did smoke and he still does smoke even today? I told him not to smoke around the courthouse, but he still smokes today. Does anybody feel like that would interfere with their ability to act as a juror in this case? And we we had a couple people stricken for cause on that question. And a couple of very nice people said, I remember one little old gal said, uh, said, well, you know, our people don't smoke, but I don't have anything against it. If he wants to do it, that's that's okay. And they and it was a kind of affirmation that they were going to be fair. That was really great. And uh, I had another question that was directed to his diagnosing himself, taking himself to the emergency room, that sort of thing. And it was, does anyone feel that even though a patient has seen multiple doctors and has been given medications and advice that the patient cannot or sh should not rely upon the doctors and should instead be responsible for diagnosing and treating themselves. And one of the defense lawyers popped up when I read that question and began objecting. That's an improper question. And I said, Your Honor, I submitted it months in advance and wasn't objected to. And the judge ruled our way. And that question, that voir dire question, proved to be a very good one because it got the people, there's three of them now, and there are three prospective jurors got a little dialogue going between one. Well, yeah, I, I think you have to rely on the doctors. And there were a few that said stuff like, no, I think it's always your responsibility and you can weed out the bad ones. So that forward looking a little bit, a little bit of individual voir dire gave us a huge leg up and coming up with a jury that was fair, I think. That's an interesting, uh, that's the crazy part about Pennsylvania where every county is different in the way, every yeah. judge within the county is different in the way that they you know, conduct yeah. the deer and run their trials and so forth. That's, I've never heard that variation yet of three people at a time and kind of individualized voir dire. So it was great. And I applaud him for doing that because like I said, it went a long way towards allowing us to get a, a decent jury. So Vic, you tried the case with Sherry. How did you guys divvy up, you know, work throughout the case? And, and do you typically try cases as a team or with someone else, or, or are you more into, you know, try case on your own or a mix? For many, 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 many years, I, up until this past year, I tried virtually every single case exclusively by myself. Last October, I, we tried a birth injury case up in Mercer County and my brother Ernest went up and Phil Chapman from our office went up. We split up different witnesses and and it was great. It was good for the case, good for the client. A lot of fun. We had a we had a great, great, great time doing it. And I became a, a believer after that, belatedly in my life, that younger lawyers, you know, somewhat less experienced lawyers have a lot to add to trials and that's how they learn. And so my habit forevermore will be to to have one or more of the other lawyers from the office in on in on trials. I just think it works better and it it allows good guy, bad guy sort of thing a little bit. You know, you can have one 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 demonic plaintiff's lawyer cross examining the defense experts and a, a nice woman like Sherry Cannon lawyer doing the direct exam of uh, a Mrs. Wolfgang, which she did in, in our case. And and Sherry, I think you probably met her a very sweet, lovely brilliant woman who made a, you know, and they just, women sometimes get along better with women in the trial. I don't know why. Uh, 
and that worked very well. So that's my my spin on it. I, my eyes have been open. Yeah, I mean, I'm very similar. I mean, not necessarily by choice, but I I tried. I don't know, first twenty five of my trials by myself, and then came over to my current firm and tried a case with Greg, and we got a great verdict on it, and it was so much more enjoyable trying a case with someone else, mm -hmm. and then. You know, and I've mostly tried cases since then with Greg. And then more recently, I tried one with Maggie, who's, you know, phenomenal associate in our office. And yeah, everything you just said, it was, you know, she had really insightful takes on the case that I had not thought of uh, at different just kind of touch, I think, in like with witnesses and that sort of thing. And I think almost, I think sometimes I can get a little sort of like you said, the demonic uh, cross-examiner, sometimes you can get kind of carried away and it's good to kind of have somebody there to either check, your, you know, help check yourself or they're just providing that overall balance to your your team's trial presentation. So yeah, feel very similar to the way that you do about that. That trial in, in October, my brother Ernest, I was cross-examining the maternal fetal medicine expert for the defense. And I, I did exactly that. I got a little bit, you know, a little, you know, a bit of long trial, stressful <laughs> for a couple of minutes, a couple of minutes. I, I was a little bit over the top and raised my voice and I was polite, but I raised my voice and it was stern and, and, uh, and Ernest said to me, he said, boy, oh boy, said for a couple of minutes, man, you were you were over the top there. And, and the defense lawyer, I remember the closing that piece lamented to the jurors he said mr dr so-and-so was just here trying to help and and he took a beating from mr Probanik. he took a beating he said he hollered at him from over here he hollered at him from over there and you know never a good idea i survived that that episode but never a good idea and it goes to your point that having a second set of eyes and a brain in the courtroom to pull you back a little bit is, is, is helpful. Yeah. Too late for no harm done. <laughs> so what was the verdict in the McKean case and the Wolfgang case? Uh, the, the verdict was 3.25 million, 99% uh, on the defendants. 1% I think was more like a slap in the face to the defense right. the jury on Mr. Wolfgang for God knows what. But uh, that was the verdict. And it was, you know, certainly the largest verdict in the uh, history of the, that county. Uh, maybe the only one in the medical case. I don't know. But, but how did it break down? It was like 90% to the PCP, 10%, or whatever to the ER doctor, and 1% to Mr. Wolfgang. Well, was there, uh, I mean, was there, uh, it was all pain and suffering, right? All non-economic? Yeah, yeah, we had a life care plan for the, you know, prosthetic and all that stuff for the artificial limb, but I didn't even put it in. What was the number? Do you remember what that number was? Might've been a hundred or 200,000. Yeah. It was not, it was not anything that to me warranted the trouble or, you know, I, I thought I'd be a lot better off talking about who Randy was and how this affected him than you know, talking about nickels and dimes for, for socks, for prostheses. And um, was there a breakdown between past and future pain and suffering? Or was it just a single line number? Do you remember? So it was 10%, 89%, 1%, and past non-economic loss, 1 million, and future non-economic non loss is 2.25%. And how old was, is, was it Randy? Did you say Randy Wolfgang? Yeah. How, how old was Randy? 66 at the time of these events. So, I mean, I, I'm probably wasting a lot of time in my life, but 
whenever I've had verdicts like that of all pain and suffering, and they come up with some number in a, one of the three states, I think, the entire United States where we can't ask or suggest a specific number, what do you think drove that number? Where do they get those figures from, if you had to guess? Oh, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with their perception of the, of the client. And this is another fascinating point about this trial. One of the other observations my defense lawyer-oriented colleague Sherry Cannon made over the years, she said, he doesn't even complain. There's nothing. You ask him, is you having an artificial leg bother you, Randy? He said, no, you know, <laughs> don't skip it. He's a janitor at a grade school up there and, you know, runs those big machines, pushing them across the floor and does all that hard work and drags that heavy leg of his around Never skips a beat, smiling the whole time, happy, happy as he can be, just keeps on, keeps on plugging. A real tough son of a gun with a good disposition. And, you know, what do you do with a guy like that in an injury trial where you're not going to get sympathy for how horrible, you know, his life is in a direct way? You can't have him get up there and whine. That's not who he is. So his entire direct examination, Brendan, was maybe 20 minutes and it consisted and it consisted of me you know kind of having fun with randy and talking about what happened to him and and i said he said a friend of mine gave me one of those electric carts and we'd had a big storm so i was going around the yard and you know had a chainsaw i was cutting down the trees that had been knocked over and got those all done and and uh i said what about your garden because i knew he had a big garden because up there in this little lane up in Smithport. He said, well, before I got my leg, I had to go out there, you know, and crawl along the rows. And he's laughing at himself. But at the same time, he's, you know, he's a hero for doing this stuff. And he's not crying about it. But the jurors are seeing that this son of a gun, you know, has really been hurt, you know, not by me telling him that or him telling him that, but just by inference, if you will. And I said, well, tell us what happened whenever the next year, whenever you got your artificial leg and you're working out the garden, he starts laughing. And he said, well, you know, I was out there planting and my my leg got stuck in the mud and I was spinning around out there and I had to call Stacy and she came out and she started laughing at me and I had to pull my leg out of the artificial leg and I fell over and we were both on the ground laughing about it. And I had to pull it out of the mud and put it back on. The jurors were kind of laughing too, but at the same time saying, gee, Zooey, this guy had to put up in the lock. And I asked him, I said, what do you do whenever you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Because at your age, maybe you have to do that once. So I said, well, I have to get up and put the leg on and, you know, put the socks on and all that. And he said, the other thing, when I get in the shower, he goes, you know, I have to sit down because he didn't have a waterproof prosthesis or anything. And I have to sit down. And he said, man, if that water gets too cold or too hot, you're really in trouble because you're sitting there. And he's laughing about it the whole time. And the jurors, so you could see they loved the guy. And then I asked him, and I didn't know how, I don't think there's anything wrong with this. I, this is, I think it's kind of a given. I said, but I put it to him. I said, Randy, would you be embarrassed if I asked you to come and sit down in front of the jurors on a chair and take your leg off and show us what you know, what you have to do to do that? You've been bragging to me and Randy, or your wife's been bragging to me about how quickly you can do it now. Let's, you know, show us with the court's permission. I said, your honor, would you sit down and do that? So I got a chair for him and he came and sat down and the jurors were all standing up, peering over, looking at his, as was the judge, looking at what he had to peel off and the different layers of socks and all that stuff. And uh, and he put it back on. And it was just a, you know, you see these books today, you've probably read them about, you know, jurors not wanting to help people that are helpless or dead or gone or, you know, never really going to 
do him any good. Right. Hopeful rather than hopeless, right? Yeah. He was a classic example of a guy who one of the jurors said to me afterwards, he just wanted to get back to work. And uh, that same gal who had talked to me about pity pats said to me, I was very concerned about those conservative jurors in Smithport not coming up with enough money for that man. So I figured I'd start out low about a million dollars and see if I can work them up from there. And she said, when I proposed that, she said, those old ladies on the jury said to me, oh, no, that's not enough money for that poor man. <laughs> that's awesome. Did she give you any insight on like how they arrived at, at uh, 3.25 or was it just kind of, you know, random numbers get thrown out there? They knew it was, you know, a million dollar type case and and they just kind of picked something arbitrary. I don't really have any insight on the, the minutia of that. It was, you know, I guess the, in these times, people know what cases go for, even in, even in Smithport. And I guess they just thought that was the right thing to do. So, Vic, we're coming up on the hour point, which is usually where I like to keep these interviews. But I have last sort of area I want to talk to you about, which is one I've been wrestling a lot with. So you had a case here where, I mean, defendants were individual doctors for the most part, right? Uh, the hospital as well, the ER doctor, yeah. But was the, the ER doctor that was kind of the focus or was it the hospital as the employer of them? Uh, both. Okay. I would say yeah. And and where I'm going with this is, you know, I you know, maybe selfishly because I do mostly medical malpractice, but you know, I think the hardest cases for a plaintiff to win are cases against individual doctors. You know what I mean? It's not a system failure case, it's not a corporate case. You know, generally speaking, you know, doctors are trying to help. They didn't mean to hurt this patient, even if they were grossly negligent. Right. How do you in opening or the way that maybe it's a cross-exam of the, of the defendant. How do you deal with that sort of, you know, there's going to be that natural kind of, well, typically a kind of a natural fondness that the jury's going to have for the doctor. They're going to hold the doctor in high regard. Do you have any specific argument that you make on that point or, or not necessarily? Don't get too caught up on it. If that's where you are, you can't get too caught up on it. I mean, if that's if you only have an individual defendant in a case, that's what you have to deal with. As far as you know, whether it's hard or easy, hospital versus doc. Obviously, the hospital, like the trucking company, is way better as a as a defendant than an individual physician. But I think that has to come out. Their fate is usually in their hands, Brendan. I think if they're you know individual doctors, I think sink or swim based on how they behave on the witness stand. In my experience. If you get a guy up there who's really a sweet guy and, you know, laments what happened and instead of this trying to fib, go around it, and, you know, they hang themselves almost every time. And that's what I have to depend upon. And, you know, these days doing depositions beforehand, we have a pretty good flavor for where they're going to go. And, and, you know, with that, you have to be deadly polite always polite to those individual doctors. You can't be heavy handed with them, but there is, you know, there's a way where they reveal what happened. I mean, I think once they get caught in a lie, which I caught all the doctors in this case and many, you know, I think their fate is sealed. And once, if they were on the right side, they do not have to do that ever. Okay. Do, do, do you have anything? Cause I'm, what I'm thinking about is, you know, I typically take a rules-based approach and you know, tell the story and the, you know, focusing on the actions right. of the defendants and so forth. 
but I've been thinking more about, you know, like you said earlier, the importance of, uh, you know, being truthful with the jury and trying to meet the jury even more kind of where they are regarding, look, this case is not a referendum on whether this doctor is a bad person or a bad doctor overall, you know, or that they even meant to hurt this patient. In fact, I think I would bet the doctor had to do over and they wouldn't want this to happen. They probably feel bad about it, you know, but... Yeah, always, always, always say that myself. I always make it a point, usually in the opening, to explain to the jurors that they're not here to judge the guy's entire life or his moral worth or his quality as a doctor, but the evidence is going to show beyond any, any doubt in this case that in this case, a terrible error was made, a negligent error in her you know, her client, whatever. Okay. The, uh, you know, sometimes, like I said, I think mostly they're responsible for their own face in these trials. The Dr. Lamoth, the ER doctor in our case, had an expert, Dr. Rebecca, in case you ever run into him, who came in on Friday afternoon and who had written a report that said that they changed Mr. Wolfgang's antibiotic from Augmentin to Clindamycin and it's all over his report multiple times. Every defense report in the case changed the antibiotic from the clindamycin. He comes in on Friday afternoon and he says, Dr. Lamoth added, added, and I heard, it was actually a question from his lawyer, Brendan. Did Dr. Lamoth add clindamycin to antibiotic regimen? I'm thinking, uh-oh, I got a major issue coming up here. And sure enough, he said, yes, he added clindamycin to the augmentin regimen. And there was a document, a nurse's note in the chart that said Randy had left his augmentin at the hospital, that they called him to come and pick it up. And after three days, they threw it away. And so Dr. Rebecca, contrary to what's in his report, said he was supposed to keep taking both antibiotics. And if he had done that, it probably would have saved his leg. Mm. So all on Randy for being reckless and negligent and not coming back to the hospital and picking up his augmentin that he was supposed to take along with his clindamycin, you know, complete fabrication, absolutely complete fabrication. And here it is Friday afternoon on a, after a good week in trial. And I'm thinking, oh shit, this is really gonna be a mess. And I thought there has to be some documents somewhere. And Sherry Cannon, God bless her, is a, the most meticulous custodian of records and whatnot. Over the weekend, she finds, not in anything produced by the hospital, shockingly, but she finds medication discharge instructions printed up at the hospital, signed by Dr. Lamoth, that tells him what to do about his medicines at his second ER visit. First one, he was given augmentin. Second one, clindamycin. It says, plain as day, plain as day, Brendan, stop taking these medicines, augmentin begin taking these medicines, clindamycin, signed by the defendant P. Henry Lamoth. Thank God, right? <laughs> who gets up on the witness stand Monday morning and proceeds to tell the jurors how he had added, I, I still couldn't believe he was going to do this, how he, he had added the clindamycin to the augmentin regimen and he wanted the double antibiotic coverage and all this jazz. You know, and embellishes this tale that clearly, clearly was false. And... I had uh, a PowerPoint prepared with that form, and I put it up on the screen, and the defense lawyer began to say, we don't have that document, and 
blah, blah, blah. And I had Sherry check over the weekend, and we had produced it to them, and apparently they neglected to ever look at what we gave them. Well, meanwhile, wasn't judge, it their record? <laughs> yeah, right. It wasn't their record. The said, well, you better have given that to the defense. I said, your honor, it's their record. It's a Brown hospital record. You know, how can it be my responsibility to do that? But we had in any event. Sure. You could tell the judge was laying for me. Right? Yeah, then, right, you know, right, right, right. I had produced that. It was going to be an ugly, ugly event for me, but uh, they checked their records and abashedly said the following morning that they had it. It was just overlooked. But anyhow, uh, a couple of hard, couple of hard lessons there. But I asked Mister or the Doctor Lamotha, and I used one of my old lines from an old thing I used to do in a criminal defense case once in a while. I said, "Do you know what the word mendacity means, Doctor Lamotha?" And he said. Uh, no. I said, well, it's about not telling the truth. I said, I don't want to call anybody a liar in their face. It's impolite. My mother always cautioned me against that. But would you tell the members of this before I showed them the form? I said, would you tell the members of the jury whether that story about adding clindamycin to augmentin was one that was laden with mendacity, Dr. Lamoth? And he said, he said, absolutely not. And then I put the form up and showed him. <laughs> I've never seen that form before. I deny that. You know, it was just horrible. Horrible, horrible. I mean, but is that not, I mean, th those are the greatest moments in trial, right? I mean, that you live and you'll never forget that moment. I mean, those are the greatest moments when, when you catch somebody and you're able to expose something like yeah, this. Yeah. This this trial had a lot of those, thankfully, but uh, that willful falseness jury charge as part of my closing <laughs> emphasized. And, that, and the silly PCP when he was showed the form, he testified after the ER guy. When he was showed the form, he said, oh, I've never seen a form like that before. I don't know what that, you know, it just, he got in this, he put himself in the same boat. For no reason. With the ER. Yeah. 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 That's great. I mean, I love hearing stories like that. And those are the things that, that make me the most fired up to keep doing it. So, well, Vic, this has been awesome. I've gotten a ton out of this, learned a lot from you. You know, we both have uh, tough trials coming up in January. So, I wish you the best of luck with yours, and um, I appreciate you doing this, man. I, I, I got a lot out of it, and uh, it was just really enjoyable for me. So thanks for your time, man. Thank you. So if anybody wants to uh, get a hold of uh, Victor, the great Victor Perbanic, uh, you can find them at uh, Perbanic and Perbanic all over online. Just search uh, great uh, PA medical malpractice lawyers, and, and Vic Face will pop right up. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast again. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal and catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.